0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today, so if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and to get that out and open there on your lap, it would be helpful if you could take a look at that as we are working through um, Romans 8 this morning. And as we are getting there, I want to, uh, to chat with you just for a second about All In, if you are new to Stonegate, all in is the generosity initiative that began in March and is gonna be lasting for the next two years for our church family. And the generosity initiative is doing two or three uh, particular things. One, it is gonna be all the generosity that comes in over the next two years is gonna to go to cultivate ministry. That's the first thing. To uh, To fuel our ongoing ministry that we have operating here at Stonegate that the Lord is blessing in so many good ways. Secondly, to plant the gospel. That's our orphan care and church planting endeavors. And thirdly, to put down roots. And so it's going to be used to do all three of those things. And just in light of all in, I want to say just a a couple of quick things. First of all, I want to thank you for how you are sacrificially giving. You know, it's one thing to make that commitment back in March. And it's another thing to actually put that into play. And as a church family, that is happening I mean, across our church family, there are families, men and women, who are giving in ways that are really changing them. So I want to say thank you for that sacrificial generosity. It has been so humbling to watch that. Um, Secondly, I want us to be able to celebrate this. Over the last two and a half months, so really kind of since March and All In, kind of the final moments of that happened, and as we moved into April and began to give toward All In, there has been over 80 families give for the first time toward Stonegate. Over 80. Yeah, that is really something to celebrate. That is evidence of God's good work among us here. And if you're one of those who that is you, man, I wanna just say thank you. I can't wait to hear about the journey that the Lord is starting you on. So we're we're so looking forward to that for you. And then thirdly, I wanna take a second to talk about the third initiative of putting down roots. And so we have about a little over two years left in our our, uh, contract here at the conference center. And then we have to be out by September of 2018. So our building timeline is about, you know, kind of parallels with that sort of September of 2018 sort of a timeline. And so in light of that, we are now engaged in really thinking hard about what will a building have or not have? What's the ethos of that building gonna be? What's the the look and feel that we're going for? We're just in the middle of all of those sort of questions asking a million of them right now. And uh, I wanted to kind of let you know kind of how that's working. We have a small team assembled to do that, to really help think about that, to really seek the Lord on behalf of our church in light of that. And I wanna um, make you aware of who those people are. So up on the screen, you're gonna see five names. David Hanson, Ken Latcham, Shane Bernard, Nanette Mills, and myself are doing a lot of just the labor of thinking through and praying and asking the Lord for clarity on that. And so, uh, so that team is gonna be primarily responsible for, for working in that and, and coming to some uh, you know, conclusions in the middle of all that. Now, here's one of the things though, I, you know, at the end of the day, we want our entire church family, we want input, we want the best ideas that we can possibly have as we're doing that. So down at the bottom of this screen, the next slide is going to have that email, building at stonegate And that is just a way for us to look at you and say, if you've got ideas for us, if you've got things that you would like for us to think through and pray through and to seek the Lord on, we would love to hear from you on that. So if that's you, you can write down that email, building at stonegate-church.com. Um, let us know. And we would love to think about um, the ideas. We're not saying we're going to do every idea that everyone would have, but we are saying that we would take that before the Lord and we would try to get clear. Clarity on, would that be for us or not? So that email address is where you can send those things and that team of people um, will be praying over that and seeking clarity on that. So September of 2018 is kind of that big moment though. It's coming, it's gonna be like three blinks and we're gonna be there. So we are doing all that work now to get ready for that. Okay, we are to Romans chapter eight. We've got two verses today. This is part five of a set of sermons through Romans 8. We've got two verses today. It's verses 12 and 13. So if you look at verse 12, this is where it starts. So then, that so is pointing back to what he has said in verses 1 through 11. So then, brothers, he is talking to men and women who have put their faith in Jesus. Jesus has saved them, rescued them, brought them from death to life. So then, brothers, we are debtors, comma, not to the flesh, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In other words, he is saying, We are debtors, but he is making it clear. We are debtors not to the flesh. The flesh is that old sinful part of you that is hostile toward God, doesn't trust God, is rebellious toward God, that is at war with God. It's that part of us. He's saying we are not debtors to that flesh to live according to the flesh. He's saying we don't owe the flesh who has caused us so much misery, caused you so much misery, me so much misery in my life. He's saying we don't owe the flesh A single cent. You don't owe the flesh a cent. I don't owe the flesh a cent. We don't owe that old sinful nature anything. Now, there is an implication in verse 12, though. He's saying, You don't owe the flesh anything, but we are debtors to. We do owe God everything. This is the God who sent his son to live for us to die for us, risen from the dead on the third day so that we could be brought to life. That God who has given us everything, it's to that God we owe everything. We don't owe a cent to the flesh, but we owe our entire life to God. That's verse 12. Then you get to verse 13. We're gonna spend the rest of our time today. And this is a verse that I would put on the short list of verses that we should all have memorized, that every Christian should have memorized. Verse 13 For if you live according to the flesh, you're not a debtor to that flesh, you shouldn't live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, contrast, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, You will live. So I'm gonna take verse 13 in three kind of sections. There's gonna be a what, like what is this this verse calling us toward? So there's a what, and then there is a how. How does this verse tell us to go about doing it? And then there is a why. Why does this verse tell us to do this? So we're gonna start with the what. The what of verse 13. Now, if you're reading verse 13 in Romans 8, it should spark a few questions in your mind if you are reading the rest of Romans along with it. So as if, for instance, here's one question that should bring to mind. In, in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul says, for all of those who by faith have um, you know, stepped into a relationship with God that they are trusting in the life, death, and resurrection to cover their sin, to bring new life for them. For all of those who have been rescued and redeemed by God, in Romans 6, Paul says, you are dead to sin. Sin is dead. You are dead to sin. But then you get to Romans 8, and now he says, now in Romans you need to put sin to death in you. So in Romans 6, that you're dead to it. Romans 8, you need to put it to death. So the question becomes, Well, which is it? Are you dead to it or do you need to put it to death? Answer, both. That's the answer. You're supposed to do both of those two things. You're supposed to consider both of those two things. So how does that work out? How can it be you're dead to it? And then how can he also say, but now you need to put it to death. How can he say both of those two things and both of those make sense? Um, Let me just kind of unpack it like this. If you are a a believer in Jesus, if if you put your faith in Jesus, you're you're following Jesus. You're a son or daughter of his. If that is true of you, you live in what you might call an already but not yet existence. An already but not yet. In other words, the moment you step into life with God, It's as if God puts a down payment on his promises. He's saying in that moment, I am promising you so, so, so much. And and the moment you step into it, you get some of it. It's the down payment of those promises, but so much of what we're looking forward to as sons and daughters of God are still in the future. So there is an already, yes, you're getting a down payment. You're getting some of this now, but so much of it is a not yet. So much of it is forward-looking. And Romans 6 and Romans 8 together show an illustration of this. Yes, when, when you become a Christian, when you are saved from your sin and into life with God in that moment, the Lord does give a mortal death blow to that old sinful nature, that old flesh that's in you. There is a mortal death blow given. But that, that sinful nature, it is not fully dead. It's been given a death blow, but it's still breathing and kicking. It's, it hasn't yet taken its last breath, right? So in light of that, in light of you getting a down payment, it's, it's dying, but not yet dead. That, that already, but not yet, he is saying, yes, it's dead in the sense that a mortal death blow has been given, but it's still kicking. So that, Romans eight thirteen, you now need to finish it off by putting it to death. Yes, it's, it's been given a death blow. And yes, you need to put it to death. That's the, the point that Paul's making in Romans eight thirteen. 13. Um, one of the, the ways I like to just put this in an imagery is think about your heart as a territory. And in the territory of your heart, the heart is the, the Bible's way of saying the real you. It's what controls you. It's your mind, what you think, your will, what you do, your affections, what you hope in and desire and love. Your heart is all of those things. And so if you picture your your heart as a territory, picture the capital of the territory in your heart. Before you were rescued from your sin by Jesus, the the controlling force in the capital of your heart was the flesh. That part of you that's at war with God, that mistrusts God, that doesn't like God, that's hostile to God. It was the controlling influence of your life, pre-Jesus When you are rescued from your sin, here's what happens. The spirit of God comes into your heart and it comes into the capital and it dethrones the flesh in your heart. It gives it that mortal death blow. It dethrones it in your heart. And now the spirit of God takes up residence in your heart so that now it's the controlling master of your life. It is what's reigning in your life. Okay, now the question becomes, what happens to the flesh that was dethroned by the spirit that was given that mortal death blow? Here's what happens. It retreats from the capital where the spirit is now reigning and ruling. And it retreats into the jungles of your heart where it's waging this guerrilla war in your life. Do you see the picture? So so think about the, the old sinful part of you like this. Yes, it's been given that death blow, Romans 6. But it is not, although it's been dethroned, given that death blow of Romans 6, it's not yet destroyed. There is gonna be a day, and aren't we thankful for the day where it's finally destroyed in our life? That part of us, that's at war with God. But it's not yet destroyed. It's dethroned, but not yet destroyed. It it no longer reigns in your heart, the spirit now reigns in your heart, but it still remains in your heart. It's in the jungles. Guerrilla warfare is what it's doing. It's just looking for the ideal opportunities to attack you, to give you all sorts of misery in your life. That's where the flesh is. So in light of that, now Paul is saying in Romans eight thirteen, here is what our job as a follower of Jesus is. One of our jobs is to get into the jungles of our heart and to wage war on the sin, that old you that's still there that's waging war on you. You're to wage war on it. That is what Paul is talking about. You're to wait, you're to, you know, to get into the recesses of that jungle and you're to put that old sinful nature to death. Everywhere you see sin in that jungle, you are to put it to death. This is Paul's point in Romans 8. So now I want you to look at that phrase, put sin to death, or putting sin to death, or those deeds of the body in verse 13. That verb for putting it to death in verse 13 is translated in older English translations as mortify. It's an old English word to mortify sin or to mortify the deeds of the body. So that word mortify, I think, is a really good word to hold on to. It kind of carries the theological weight that we would want in a moment like this. So what is mortification? What does it mean to mortify sin? Mortification is the theological word that is signifying we are to put sin to death in our life. We're to get the ax out and to lay the ax at the root of sin in an effort to kill sin and to weaken sin. I like how one person said it. Said mortification or putting sin to death is declaring war on the old life and fighting for the new life that is mortification. It's, it's waging war on the old life as we fight for the new life. Now, let me clarify, mortification is not sinless perfection. Good luck with that, right? Our hearts are so prone to wonder and it's because our hearts are so prone to wonder that we need to mortify the flesh, right? So this is not a call for sinless perfection. It is a call for the continual weakening of sin in your life and a laying an ax at the root of sin in your life. That's mortification. Let me have one other clarification. Mortification isn't a method. It's not a one, two, three, four step process and then you move on. That is not the idea of mortification. Mortification is less method and more mentality, It is waking up with the determined resolve that today I am going to stop dying and I'm going to start living. That is mortification. It's a mentality that says, Sin is waging war on me. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. The, 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 the old flesh in us, it is waging war against our soul. It is waging war against us. Mortification is the mentality that today I am waking up with this mentality. I am gonna also declare war on and wage war against it. I have declared war on this thing. That, that is the mentality that mortification carries with it. Okay, so that is the what. Mortification. It is declaring war on that old you that still resides in your heart in the jungles, waging that guerrilla war. It's declaring war on that and then bringing to life and nourishing the new life that Jesus brings to us. That's mortification. Now the how, the how. Now I want you just to look at verse 13 and I wanna pull out five hows out of verse 15. Five things that verse 13 show us about mortification. Here's the first one. Mortification is ruthless. It is ruthless. Verse 13 does not say, hey, wade into the jungles of your soul, the jungles of your heart, find sin in there somewhere, and then open hand slap that sin. That is not what it says, is it? It does not, nowhere in verse 13 do you see an open hand slap mentioned. In verse 13, it says, you wade into the jungles of your heart and what do you do to the sin that you find there? You put it to death, right? Can we all agree that putting something to death is a ruthless moment? It is ruthless. You don't do that by few easy and gentle strokes. That's not how death is brought to something. You do that by a ruthless stroke. That is how something is put to death. So part of what Paul is saying in 8.13 is this. Moderation will not work for your sin. It will not work. Being gentle with your sin will not work. What Paul is urging us toward is a ruthless putting to death of our sin. John Owen, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin and Believers. It's about an 80 or 90 page book. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to find it and to read it. There's a couple of, he's a 16th century guy. So um, there's a couple of versions that have brought that up into like, 21st century English that make it a little easier to read but it's 80 or 90 pages and it is really in church history over the last 2,000 years um, probably the gold standard in this issue of like what does it mean to mortify sin to put sin to death in our lives and I, I wanna just give you a, a one quote out of the book here and when he's talking about the ruthless nature of putting sin to death listen to what he says He says, do you mortify? I mean, are you mortifying sin in your life? Is this something that you're about doing? He says, do you make it your daily work to mortify sin? He says, be always at mortification, at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Now, why would we cease not a day from this work? Why would every day that we wake up, we're about mortifying sin? Why would we do that? His answer, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now just think on that for a moment. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. These are the only two options in your life. There's not a third option. There's not a, I'm not gonna kill sin and it's not gonna kill me option. War has been declared. There is a clear line in the middle. This side is trying to kill that side. That side is meant to kill this side and there are no prisoners to be taken. It's either killing us or we're killing it, he says. He goes on to say, he that stands still and allows his enemies to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. In other words, if sin's trying to kill you and you're not trying to kill sin, guess who's gonna kill who? Sin's gonna kill you, right? That's, what he's, that's his point there. He goes on. If sin be subtle, and sin is very subtle in our life, if sin be watchful, and it is very watchful, if it be strong and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we, on the other hand, so it's strong, it's vigilant, it's watchful, it's always at the work of killing our souls. If that is sin, and in response to that sin, our response is, were slothful, negligent, foolish, in proceeding to the ruin of that sin, he asked the rhetorical question, can we expect a comfortable outcome? In other words, he's saying, is it going to go well for you if sin is always trying to kill you and you're not trying to kill sin? Answer is no. It's going to go really bad for you. Then he goes on. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled that it prevails upon you or you prevail upon it. And it will be so while we live here in this world. Let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. To paraphrase, he goes on to say, you have to lay your hands upon the throat of sin and you don't let go until it stops breathing. That is how you kill sin. That is how you get the ax and lay it to the root of sin. You have to be that ruthless in it. And and I think that's a good word for us because here is how many of us approach sin. We approach it like this. Okay, I don't think I'm gonna kill that sin. I don't think I'm gonna do that. I think what I'm gonna do instead of killing it is I'm gonna put it in a cage. I'm gonna make sure it's on the leash where it just can't break free in my life. That's how I'm gonna deal with sin. And just hear what he's saying. He's saying, that is impossible. It either kills you or you kill it. There are no prisoners. There is no putting it on a leash. Um, One of my favorite little passages that I think just illustrate this is in Genesis chapter four. You might remember this moment with Cain and Abel where the Lord looks at Cain and he says, Cain, this is in the middle of him about to kill his brother. Um, He says, Cain, sin is at your door and it's crouching. It is in the the position of an adversary, of an animal who is crouching and ready to attack. And it says, it's at your door waiting to devour you. It wants to devour you. Now that is your imagery of sin. It's an apex predator whose number one aim is to kill you, to devour you. That's the aim of sin. So if we're just gonna put this in an illustration, think about it this way. If I were to come to you and say, There are about a dozen lions that have just been turned loose around the conference center. They've already killed X, Y, Z, A, B, and C guy. They've already killed them, and they're hungry, evidently. Now, what would your approach be when you walked out of the conference center? I mean, just imagine that for a minute. There's six lions out there, they're like right out the doors what would your approach be? I doubt your approach would be, uh, man, I've got my little uh, cage here. I've got my uh, leash here and I've got my shot collar. Let's go do this thing. I doubt that's gonna be your approach. A leash does not work on a lion. It doesn't work, right? If you knew that there was six lions outside the conference center right now, you're gonna be buckled up ready for war. You know it's them or it's you. They're going to eat you. Somebody's dying out there. That's what you would know that. And he's saying that's the approach to sin. You you cannot approach sin as if it's manageable, as if it's a tamed, domesticated animal that you can put in your lap and it's gonna be okay for you. That is not the way sin works. It's not a domesticated animal. It is a wild animal. And and here's the deceptive nature of sin. It will lay on your lap just long enough to soothe yourself to sleep, thinking it's all gonna be okay. And then it turns on you and you die, right? Right? This is how sin works. In light of that, Paul is saying, you have to put sin to death. Think about sin like the Bible thinks about sin. It is a ruthless animal ready to devour you, waiting for the moment. Therefore, we as followers of Jesus have to get our minds ready, buckled up, ready for that war. This is what Paul is saying. Life is war with sin. It's war. It's a no prisoners war. They kill, it kills us, we kill it. Those are the only two options. We have to be ruthless. Here's the second thing he says about it in verse 13. He says, mortification is universal. Mortification is universal. Look at verse 13 again. If by the spirit you put to death the deed of the body. Is that what it says, deed of the body? It's not deed, is it? rather than it being put to death the deed of the body, you might circle the S on the end of deeds. It's deeds of the body. It's plural, not deed, but deeds. In other words, he is saying, this is not like a, you just pick one little sin out of your life and that's the one you're gonna really get serious about. He's saying, no, no, no. It's every sin in our life. The the application of verse 13 is universal to all sin that we ever see in our life, that we are seeking to put it all to death, not just some of it to death. Now, again, I think this is like one of those words that we need to think about and hear. Because if you're anything like me, here is what happens in your heart. Okay, this is what happens in my heart. There are some sins that I look at that just don't have nearly as an attractive sort of luster for me as other sins. So I am very prone to look at these sins over here and think like this put those things to death. Get them out of here. They've got to go now. That's some some sins. But there are other sins, we might call these darling sins. They don't feel like those sins over there. These sort of sins, these darling sins, don't, don't look so bad to me. They actually have an attractive sort of luster around them. And I'm really prone to think with my darling sins, you know what, let's don't, let's don't like, kill the, let's kill those sins, but these sins, let's make sure the leash is just real tight around them. Let's make sure that, that, that they're under control, but they're just not dead. We're really prone to think like that about sin. We'll have the mentality of putting these sins to death, and we'll have the mentality of putting these darling sins in cages. Now, to put an image, you know, maybe a metaphor around kind of the implications of this, think of, uh, think of this just picture. If, uh, if a person says to you and says, or comes to you and says, hey, I've got this house, you, you feel free to live in this house for the weekend. Feel free. You can live in the house for the weekend, it's all yours. Then they come back and say, but you can live in the house, but make sure you don't go in that room, that room, or that room. So, so the house is yours except those rooms over there. What is that person really saying to you in that moment? They're really saying, listen, I know I said the house was all yours, but the house is not all yours. The house is really mine and you're gonna kind of be a weekend, kind of you can live in it for a while person. But there is a clear picture going on. The house is not yours. The house is theirs and they get to control the rooms. They, have, they can kind of lock and kind of keep you out of the certain rooms that they want you out of. So the house is theirs, it's really not yours. Now think about this with God for a second. A lot of us have that sort of a mentality with God. We look at God and we're saying, God, I'm all yours. I'm in. But those three rooms back there, you're out of those rooms. Now, what are we really saying to God in that moment? We're really saying to God, hey, God, you're all in. Or, you know, I'm all in. It's all yours. But it's really not all yours. Let's just make this clear. You're really going to be the weekend tenant in my house. You're welcome to have these three, four, five rooms, but those three rooms over there, you're just not welcome to those over there. You need to stay out of those over there. We're saying to God in that moment, you really don't own me, I own you, but you're welcome to come in and kind of play a little bit if you'd like. That's what we're saying to God in that moment. And what Paul is saying here is that that mentality will kill you. That will kill you. If your darling sins are locked behind the doors and you won't let the Lord address those, you're getting more and more of death and less and less of life. Now, I wanna just take a moment here and apply this by um, helping us see how we can know when a sin is in particular deeply rooted in our life and in light of that, really dangerous in our life. John Owen in his book on um, mortifying sin gives seven or eight you know, kind of evidences of a deeply rooted sin. Let me just give you four or five of his really briefly. Here are five. He says, here's how you know it's deeply rooted in your life. Number one, that there is a hardening toward that sin. It just doesn't feel that bad for you. You're very, you're very willing to keep that sin behind locked doors. There's just kind of that hardening toward it. Your heart is not soft toward it. It doesn't seem sinful. It actually seems really attractive to you. So there is a hardening toward that sin. Secondly, You are quick to apply grace to that particular sin with no intention of killing that sin. Now hear that for a second. He's saying, here's how you know it's in particular deeply rooted in your life. You are very quick to say the grace of Jesus covers it while at the same time making no effort to put that sin to death. Surely I'm all right with God while we leave that sin undisturbed in our life that we know is there. You know that sin is deeply rooted. That sin is deeply rooted when you are willing to do that. That that should be like a siren going off that we have a massive problem, a sin that is deeply rooted that needs serious mortification in our life when we're doing that. Thirdly, he says, here's how you know a sin is deeply rooted. When internally you approve of and take great delight in thinking about a particular sin, although you haven't actually acted acted out on it. Let me say it again. When internally you approve of and take great delight in thinking about a particular sin, even though you haven't acted out on that sin yet. So you know that sin is deeply rooted. This particular sin is deeply rooted in you, whatever it is, when you think about it, it doesn't fill in the category of things you wanna cut out of your life. It feels like a really darling sort of sin in your life. Surely we don't need to get too rough with this one. Surely this one, a cage will work just fine for this one. Surely rather than a gun pointed at this one, a leash will do just fine, surely. Surely. So when we're thinking like that, when we think about that sin, we take delight in thinking about it. Secretly, we're actually approving of that sin in our heart, kind of even longing to be able to do that sin, but we just haven't had the opportunity yet to actually get about doing it yet. You know if your heart is thinking like that toward it, it is deeply rooted in you. Fourthly, you know sin is deeply rooted when the only thing keeping you from that particular sin is the fear of punishment. I might go to prison if I do it. What are people gonna think about me if I do it? You know that if that's the only thing keeping you from sin, you have a particular problem. It's deep. That sin is deeply rooted in you because what your heart is saying is, I really wanna do it. I, I would be in if there just weren't consequences for it. And if your heart is there, it's likely just a matter of time before that deeply rooted sin actually comes out of your life. Because here's the thing, the only way to, to consistently and for the long haul fight against sin is to keep your heart satisfied in Jesus. If your heart is really looking for that satisfaction in that sin, it's already left Jesus for your satisfaction. It's really wanting and seeking it in that sin. It's just a matter of time before your heart breaks out into behavior in your life. Fifthly, He says, here's how you know sin is deeply rooted. When this sin has endured repeated correction from God, the Holy Spirit has whispered, this is not good. This needs to die. You need to put this off and put that on. And yet you stiff arm the spirit. You suppress the voice of the spirit. You have the people of God around you as a a vocal kind of mouthpiece for the spirit speak into your life. Man, this is wrong. This seems off. There's an issue here This has gotta be put to death so this can grow out of it. And you resist that. Even church discipline takes place. And yet we still would resist the voice of God. You know that a sin is particularly deep when you will, re- you will refuse and stiff arm and, and keep suppressed God's correction of that sin in your life. So just ask yourself the question, are there any darling sins that you are protecting? That you're trying to keep behind lock and key that you're saying to the Lord, hey, you're welcome. These we can deal with, but not those. Any of those in your life right now. Mortification is universal. It's for all sin in our life. Here's the third one. Mortification, here's the third, the third thing we learn out of Romans eight thirteen. Mortification has two fronts. There is two fronts to the war with sin. Now this goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the flesh and the spirit right? And we learned that the, the, the flesh and the spirit, they, they operate on two different levels. One, we, one front we might call the hands, the other we might call the heart, okay? So when you're thinking about mortifying sin, it's important that you think about sin on two different levels in your life. Sin of the hands, sin of the heart. Let's deal with sin of the hands first. Sin of the hands is your overt external behavior that you can see, It's it's typically not um, hard to see sin in the hands. This is when your heart erupts and it breaks out into your heart, you know, into your life in ways that are destructive and bad. So you see anger spill out. You see pornography happen. You see lust. You see materialism. You see a critical spirit. You see destructive words. You see pride seep out of your life. You're seeing all of those things. So it's the external part, it's your behavior. That is sin in the hands. And here's the thing. When you see sin in the hands, Paul is saying, you need to battle that. You need to go after that. You need to cut off avenues and ways for that to break out of your life. In other words, if if pornography is, is, you're seeing that in your life and your computer that comes through is still in your home where you've got easy access, that's crazy. You are not trying to mortify sin. You are coddling sin in that moment. If the, flip, or, you know, if the phone is like your thing for, for how that breaks out in your life and you've got no measures to fight against that, no boundaries, no, no, no walls erected in your life so that you can't get to that, that's a problem. Paul is saying you should battle sin in the hands. Where you see behavior break out in your life that is sinful, we should build walls between us and that sinful behavior to help us in that. Okay, now, but here's the point. It's fighting sin and mortification is not just that. It's not less than dealing with sin in the hands, but it is much more than sin in the hands and battling it on that front. We should battle it in our hands, that's our behavior, and in our heart. Both of those two ways. We have to battle it in both of those or we're never going to be successful in the long haul towards sin. Now, what does it mean to battle sin in the heart? Like the front of sin in the heart. What does it mean to do war there? See, where where sin in the hands is your behavior, what what you can externally see really easily. Battling sin in the heart is is the the kind of underlying your sin. It's what gives life to to that sin as it erupts. Maybe you can think about it this way. Where behavior is the fruit of sin, your heart is the root of sin. Let's do it in an analogy. Think about a weed in your yard. And let's just say your yard kind of looks like mine and there's a lot of weeds in your backyard here's one approach that you could take to dealing with the weeds in your yard. You could fire up the lawnmower and you could just start mowing down two feet tall weeds in your backyard. Now think about what we're talking about here. Weed, the flowering part is is what you can see, right? It's sin in in your hands. It's what you can see. So your your strategy is get the lawnmower and let's do the work. And and what happens? You, You mow it down. It looks great for a day, but what happens next week? Are the weeds back? The weeds are back, right? Now, why are the weeds back? The weeds are back because the, the, the heart of, of that weed is not uprooted, right? The root of that weed is still there. And if the root, produce, you know, the, the flower producing root is still in the ground, it's always just gonna sprout a new weed and another weed. You're gonna mow it down the next week and another weed comes out. You mow it down again and another weed comes out. And here's the point. It's just fine to get the lawnmower out. We should get the lawnmower out and deal with our behavior when we see it break out in bad ways. We should do that. But that should not be the only thing we do. We have to make sure we get past our behavior when we're mortifying sin and we get all the way down to the root of our behavior, down into the heart. We have to get out into the backyard of our heart, bend down, get our hands into the dirt and uproot the weeds, right? Right? And when you uproot the weeds, then you have killed the weed. Are we seeing that? That is how sin and the mortification of sin works. Yes, let's do some chopping off in the backyard. Yes, let's put put walls around our behavior. And let's do more than that. Let's make sure we get all the way down into the heart of it all the way down into what we're, what we're feeling and worshiping. See, let's just take pornography as an example. If you're struggling with pornography in the room and your strategy is, let's cut off all access that we can think of. That should be done. But if that's your only strategy, it's a matter of time before you find another way for access. The root of the weed will find another way out. So we can't just deal with the root of the wheat or the, the fruit, the blossom, the flower of the wheat. We have to make sure we get down into the heart and we deal with our heart that is on a desperate search for satisfaction and pleasure apart from Jesus. And if we don't deal with our heart that is on that desperate search for satisfaction apart from Jesus, the root of, or that, that root's gonna flare up in another flower. Next week, next month, next year, it's always gonna bring back more fruit with it. Are we seeing that? See, if, if your deal is, I use money to get security. So, so you've got greed. So, so greed's up here. You're stingy with what God has entrusted to you. So, so that's the external action. But if you just deal with, with the behavior up here and never get down into the heart that is trying to save our way into security, We're not looking for it in Jesus. We're looking for it in a big bank account. If we never deal with it down there, we'll always be stuck in that sin. Are we seeing it? See, it's never enough to deal with the behavior. We always have to get down into the heart and what we're worshiping that fuels that behavior. Mortification takes work on both of those two fronts. Both our behavior, sin in the hands, and our heart, sin in the heart. Here's the the fourth thing we learned from verse 13. Mortification is relentless. It's relentless. In verse 13, the the verb translated put to death is in the present tense. You might just write present tense out there somewhere. It's in the present tense, which signifies in the Greek ongoing action. It's not a, I killed it today, so I'm done. I've weeded my heart today, so I'm done. I've uprooted this thing today, so I'm done. Here's the problem with our heart. It's got a billion seeds of sin in it. And every day we've got to go out and weed some more every day weed some more. See, it's not a one-time event in our life. Mortification is a lifelong daily event in our life. I mean, think about it this way. If sin is really an enemy that is plotting your death and demise every day, just looking for an inroad into your life, looking for a way in, looking for a way that it can, you know, a guerrilla warfare can be launched in your life. If it's constantly looking for that, what would that require on our part? Constant vigilance. A constant searching out, finding that sin in the recesses of our heart and putting it to death. It's a relentless pursuit. Mortification is a lifelong battle with sin. Here's the fifth thing we learn about mortification. Mortification is dependent upon the spirit. It's dependent upon the spirit. You see this in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, you put to death... You, he's talking to people who have been rescued by Jesus. You put sin to death. But then he clarifies right in front of that. You by yourself can't put sin to death. You have to do that by the spirit. It's if by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. So, so see the, the whole robust picture here. He's saying you Christian put sin to death, but you Christian are dependent upon the spirit to put that to death. Now, this is helping us see the both and here. Now, this is, this is a very important little moment today because I think we're prone to fall into two ditches. Here is ditch number one. It, putting sin to death is just something the spirit does. So we are all passive. The spirit is all active. We do nothing. He does everything and sin dies in our life. That's not the way it works. You will never put sin to death if you don't take an active posture and a proactive mentality to put it to death. So that's, that's one problem, is we're just saying, I'm gonna do nothing, the Spirit's gonna do everything. Here's the other ditch. I'm gonna do everything, and it's all gonna be out of my own strength and kind of out of my own sort of willpower. This is the other problem. If you're not dependent upon the Spirit, you will never put to the death the deed to the flesh. And what Paul is helping us see is, it is a both and. We, as a person, Paul is saying, you go and put it to death. And you, as you're doing that, are gonna be 100% dependent, upon the Spirit if it's gonna happen. So go do it, and your posture is dependent upon the Spirit as you're doing it. I love what one old pastor said. He said, without the Spirit, we cannot mortify the deeds of the body. But without us, the Spirit will not mortify the deeds of the body. Do you see the both in there? He's saying, without the Spirit, we can't, we don't have the capacity to do it. And here's the other side. Without us, the Spirit is saying, I'm not gonna do it. So the point Paul is making is here's how sin is mortified. We proactively work for the mortification of sin and we do that through the Spirit who is working in us. Now the question becomes, what does the Spirit do in us? How does the Spirit work in our effort to mortify sin? How how does that play itself out? Well, the Spirit does things like this. The Spirit reveals Jesus to us. See, the only way we will ever kill sin consistently and for the long haul in our life is to keep our hearts satisfied in Jesus. See, if if your view of killing sin equals, I'm gonna turn my back on Jesus and I'm gonna go trying to kill sin over here, that will never work. We kill sin by keeping our eyes on Jesus, our heart satisfied in Jesus, and then we're killing sin. That's how sin is killed. It's, it's killed by our hearts being satisfied in, in who God is for us in the person and work of Jesus. And that's what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit brings the good news of Jesus in a way that is concrete and tangible in our life so that our hearts will be satisfied in Jesus. What else does the Spirit do? The Spirit reveals sin in our life. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about um, a period in my life about a decade ago where I discovered how the flesh was working in my life in ways that I'd never seen before. It was a bruising from the Lord, a bruising from the Lord. And it was also a gift of grace from the spirit of God to show me how sin is, is, is you know, working its way into my life. Anytime you ever have this feeling in your life, oh my gosh, there is sin in me. Right there it is. It is ugly and it is nasty. Anytime you ever say that, you ought to fall to your knees and thank God because that is a gift from the spirit of God, right? He, he reveals sin, convicts us of sin. He also enables us to deal with sin. I, this is why the, in the Bible, um, repentance is called a gift in the Bible. The moment where we realize, oh my gosh, there is sin and It's nasty. And we turn from that sin, seek to put that sin to death as we throw ourselves back upon Jesus again. That, That moment of repentance, that is a gift from God. But if there's been a moment lately where you have done that, I'm turning from this, I'm throwing my life on Jesus, man, we ought to have the moment in the middle of that of just thanking God for his work in our life. That is the spirit of God working and producing fruit in us. The spirit has to do all that, but he does that through our proactive work. Seeing mortification is both and it's dependent upon the Spirit, and the Spirit uses our proactive work to put sin to death. Now we're going to finish here. The why. The why. Why is it that we should mortify sin? Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, here's the result you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, You will live. Here's the reason we should mortify the flesh. It will kill you. Here's the reason we should mortify the flesh. The spirit will then give life to you. I love how John Owen says it in his book. He says, every unmortified sin, every darling sin that you're willing to just put in the cage and coexist with, every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, its spiritual vitality. It will darken the soul and deprive it of its comforts and peace. On the other hand, every time we mortify sin, we are giving vitality to our soul. We are are producing in those moments, the spirit is gonna produce comfort and peace and assurance in us, life in us. I mentioned this illustration, it's probably been a year and a half ago, but in 1933, a man named Donald Wyman was in Pennsylvania, a very remote part of Pennsylvania, and he was cutting down trees for lumber. And in the middle of cutting down this tree, a tree fell on him and pinned his leg to the ground. He works at it for an hour to try to get himself freed. He can't free himself. He screams for an hour, hoping that someone's gonna come to the rescue. But he realizes after about an hour of screaming, no one is coming to the, I'm in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. No one is coming to the rescue. And that is where the moment happens, where he comes to his senses and realizes something radical has to happen if I'm actually going to live. And it's gonna have to be really radical. He He unlaces his boot. He takes the lace and he wraps it around his leg as a tourniquet. He pulls out his pocket knife and he goes to cutting and he cuts his leg off a couple of inches below the knee. He crawls to his truck, he drives to go get help and he lives to tell about it. In your life and in my life, if the decision comes down to, we have one leg and we live, or we have two legs and we die, is it really any decision for us at the end of the day? Is it really any decision? If to live, you've gotta cut off your leg. Or if if you wanna keep them both, you're going to die. If those are the two options, there's really no decision. For all of us in the room, it's how do I cut my leg off? It's going to be terrible, but how do I do it? If it comes down to that, that's where we all are going to be. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying you can die with both legs or you can live with one. What's it going to be? See, I think the reason that so many of us are so soft on our sin is because we don't see clearly in the options. What we think is there's not two options, there's really three options. We can keep our sin and we can live. We can keep the sin and not cut it out and we can live. But Paul is saying there is no, that, no, that option doesn't exist. It's one of two options. We cut out the sin and we live or we keep the sin and we die. Those are the only two options that he gives. I love how Ray Ortland, in his book on Romans 8 tells it. He says, Paul breaks the world up into two categories. There's only two, non-Christians and Christians. Non-Christians live according to the flesh and they die. Christians, on the other hand, put to death the uh, the sinful deeds of the body and by the power of the spirit, they live. But those are the only two options. Kill sin and live, keep sin and die. Stark absoluteness, he says. It is one or the other for every one of us, either surrendering to the flesh and dying or fighting by the spirit and living. Those are the only two options. See, I think one of the reasons that we are so soft on our sin is because we think of holiness and we think of putting sin to death out of some sort of like sense of a vague obligation that we just kind of have to do it. We don't really want to just kind of have to do it because. Paul's saying, no, it's not just because. He's saying, do you want to live? And if you want to live, you've got to put it to death. Isn't it ironic that putting our darling sins to death is really the only way we can live? That putting sin to death is like the, the life we're all looking for in the room, that we're all wanting and praying and asking the Lord to bring to us that life. Isn't it ironic that the only way that life ever comes about is by killing our darling sins? And I pray that we would all have the courage to go there and do it together. Let's pray. I wanna give you just a moment to sit with the Lord and to ask the Lord to talk to you and for the Spirit of God to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful and to stamp on your souls the things that would be. And let's just make sure we start here. If you have not been rescued by Jesus, brought into the family of God, the spirit of God now is reigning in your heart and indwelling you, killing sin is an impossibility. Like Paul's kind of point here is like, you have to be a a follower of Jesus before this is even possible. And so if there's never been that moment of faith where you have stepped in to the Lord, we have decisively made that leap. If I'm going to trust the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if there's never been that moment, step one is holding up your life to the Lord and saying, God, I am yours, all yours. Save me, rescue me. And this morning, God stands so ready to do that for anyone who would ask Him. And if that's you, you can fill that card out under your seat. Check that box, establishing a relationship with God. And we would so love to start that journey with you. For the rest of us in the room, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, what needs to die in you so that life can grow? What darling sins in your life have you Have you just kind of made the decision that I'm gonna coexist with that sin? I'm gonna allow that to sit there. I'm not gonna declare war on it. I'm not gonna be aggressive and ruthless with it. Paul is saying that that will produce death in your life. It will rob you of spiritual vitality. It will rob you of comfort and assurance from the spirit. And Paul is inviting us That that darling sin that looks so attractive? If you can get past the sugar-coated surface, that sin's aim is to poison you, to kill you, to cause misery in you. So so Paul's saying, "Would would you please put that sin to death that's trying to kill you? And will you come and will you enjoy the life that God would want for you? What needs to die in you so that new things can grow in you? And this is like that that moment in a sermon that's so important because it's so easy to walk out of here with a vague sense of that rather than just opening up your life to the Lord right now and saying, God, please show me. Please show me. And whatever right now the Spirit of God is showing you There is nothing more important in your life today than to make the the determined sort of decision. This is going to be a no prisoners rugged war with this sin. So God, would you give us the courage for that? God, would you help us in this? God, would you make us a holy people by the power of your spirit? God, will you help us see Jesus in a way that would satisfy our soul so that that enslaving grip of sin can be weakened in our life? God, will you give us the courage to put every sin we know of in our life to death, even the darling ones? God, would you help us? And I ask that with the power of your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.